when we talk about the PayPal mafia and sort of being interconnected into it, one of our funds specifically was an editor of the Stanford Review, the third editor of the Stanford Review. So there's one thing to have access to Stanford entrepreneurs or Harvard entrepreneurs. Again, we we think about where deal flow is occurring in the U.S. We focus on U.S. because it, it is a large majority of global deal flow. But then within the U.S., think about sort of where that deal flow occurs. And they occur out of incubators. They occur out of you know, four major universities, Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Berkeley. And so we then look at the funds that we invest with and, and think about how we have access to those networks. So it's one thing to just have access to Stanford entrepreneurs because you went there. It's another to have this PayPal mafia. So one of our funds, the founding GP, was the third editor of the Stanford Review. Prior to him, it was David Sachs, and prior to him, it was Peter Thiel. And so that is being connected into mm. you know, the PayPal mafia. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Are you a commercial real estate investment broker or anyone out there with an off-market Class B industrial deal between 15 and $100 million? Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including a bonus, the ability to co-invest, and exclusive partnerships for those that close deals with us. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. Perva, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Fresh off your 14th wedding anniversary. We're going to get into a, a great discussion about the venture capital industry today, but you're the first person that I've had on that worked at Lehman heading into 2008. So we have to start there. Like what happened? Uh, so it was it was quite a unique role that I had. Um, I started my career in, in investment consulting at Citigroup and moved up to New York in 2004 and landed a role by by chance in investment banking. But not in the traditional path that people take. I was part of a small strategy team uh, that supported the head of banking, Skip McGee. Talk about a great learning experience. Skip took over uh, investment banking. He was a natural resources banker out of Houston, still lives there today. Took it over in 20, 2003 um, and led the firm through the bankruptcy and as, at Barclays as well. Learned a ton about strategy. You know, Saw the rise and the fall of Lehman, which was you know, Lehman wanted to be Goldman Sachs and be at the head of the league tables in, in M&A and Levfin. And, and so as a firm, it was, you know, how do you strategically position yourselves? How do you grow the business? You know, stories for another time, yeah. but, but <laughs> a lot of, you know, besides securitized products and things like that, that, you know, certainly helped the financial crisis um, and Lehman's collapse. There were things that as a bank and as an investment bank that, pushed down from a management firm executive committee level um, in terms of, you know, trying to increase deal flow to, to get to the top of those league tables. And so a phenomenal learning experience. When you mentioned my anniversary, we were on our honeymoon when Lehman's <laughs> stock went from 16 to four and came back, uh, came back from my honeymoon and, and said, all right, might, might be time to start looking for a new role. So, but it was, um, like I said, I, I learned a ton still to this, to this day, a lot of the things that I learned at Lehman, I can use kind of in a, in a regular day-to-day -day setting and, and just overall learning about business strategy and positioning yourself. And, and more than anything, and this applies to venture capital too, you know, the mistakes that were made, you, you can learn a ton from them. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. We're recording about venture and just the market in general at a time when things can change pretty quickly. Change doesn't happen. Like you're not given like a warning and then you have years to correct it. Like things can change pretty quickly. So when I saw that you worked at Lehman, I thought I got I at least got to ask him. 
I, maybe one more question on it was did did was the writing on the wall or what did it catch a lot of folks by surprise? I, I believe it caught people by surprise. I mean, in hindsight, I could go back to presentations and things that we did and like and now say, oh, why did we do that? And we were putting together decks for the executive committee of banking. Those things, those decks were going to the firm's executive committee and things can M&A be M&A deal being done and ensuring that staple financing occurred for every deal. And, you know, and then accordingly, how do you incentivize bankers? Because the M&A banker is taking it from from start to finish and almost on the one, one yard line. And then you're supposed to call in your Lev Fin banker for that staple financing. But then how do you split revenue internally? Yeah. And so then different things that were done internally to incentivize people. And and so in hindsight, it uh, yeah. it's it's very clear that things were done inappropriately or or helped top topple it over. But at the time it it seemed rational. Yeah. It's interesting. All right. So you're you're now in venture capital. Let's just kind of talk about from there kind of your road to founding Summit Peak. Yeah. So in, in 2008, post Lehman's bankruptcy, I uh, landed a, a role at uh, the Juilliard School in New York as their head of investments. Again, phenomenal learning experience being at an institution, institution like Juilliard in, in 2008, sort of trial by fire, learned about hedge funds, learned about side pockets. Juilliard has still to this day a phenomenal investment committee that's made up of the who's who of Wall Street. And it meant that Juilliard was fortunate to be in a ton of brand name firms. But day one, they were from the 80s, part of spin outs that were coming out of Goldman and legacy brand name firms that that are long closed to investors today. So learned a ton. That's where I met my co-founder, Patrick. We were sort of through the institutional investing scene and conferences. We met in 2008 and you know we had a similar mindset in terms of how we invested and different paths but you know ultimately we you know at these various conferences appreciated each other's views on the markets and and, and investing and Patrick in 2011 uh, recruited me to join him at Cook Children's and from and he was the CIO starting in 2009 at Cook recruited me in 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 2011 and then from 2011 to 2018 we co-manage that, the the Cook Endowment portfolio. Okay. So 2018 is kind of the beginning of, of Summit Peak. Let's just kind of lay out how y'all have chosen to attack venture. It's different than maybe what folks might think where you're going straight into companies all yeah. the time. Yeah. It, you know, I, I guess perspective on how we manage it at the endowment is helpful. So, you know, as we built out this multi-asset class endowment portfolio, on a blank sheet of paper, venture was one of those asset classes that everybody hears about. If you've, if you've ever looked at the Yale endowment model and where some legacy institutions have made returns over the years, venture has stood out as one of those places. In 2011, 2012, we started thinking about how should we approach this and how should we tackle this? Venture then and venture today is no different. Access is the capitalized is, is the key. We didn't have any access. We didn't have a legacy venture portfolio. We didn't inherit anything. Uh, we didn't have access to the brand name firms, Sequoia Capital, Benchmark, Excel, Founders Fund. Beyond not having access, we weren't sure we had a different style of investing as it was, which was as those firms continued to get bigger and bigger, they were going to move further downstream. If you look back in history, the 80s, 90s, you know, where venture capital started, a lot of these brand name firms made their returns and their legacy returns by investing at the seed stage and we can you know yeah. get into what what stages mean on in this conversation but those legacy brand name firms were making their returns at the early stage and we define early stage as pre-seed to series a but as they had grown bigger and bigger and this was in 2011 2012 i mean the scale of bigger is has you know multiplied tenfold since then as they had grown bigger then, we identified that there was this gap being filled at the early stage segment of the market. And so we said, you know, why don't we take the time to figure out who's filling that gap and call, you know, call it the next generation of VCs that are being born out of brand name firms. They're, you know, as much as anybody will tell you, 
there still is a lot of bureaucracy at brand name firms in terms of decision making. You know, when you have 30 partners and you have partner meetings, and when it comes to a founder looking for funding at the seed stage, they're looking for quick decision making and not, you know, let me take it to my partner meeting on Friday or two weeks from this Friday and come back to you. And so starting in around 2010, there was this next generation of firms being built. Then it was called micro VCs. You know, there have been a dozen name iterations since then. The latest is solo capitalists, which are somebody leaving a brand name venture firm and starting their own firm and they're the only person running the money or somebody leaving a Facebook or Google or Microsoft and doing the same. They were small funds focused on the early stage. The fund model would be a $50 million fund. You write half of your fund into first checks into the company. So 25 million is deployed at the seed stage over a multi-year time horizon. And then the other half of your fund is saved for reserve capital. And so through our network, starting in 2012, we started building relationships in Silicon Valley. It was quite unique for an endowment then, and it still is quite unique for an endowment today to take an entire full-time equivalent, which was me, and you know this was Patrick's view, if we put a small amount of the endowment in venture, if it works, it has a meaningful impact to the portfolio, or it can. And we were willing to take that chance to pretty, pretty much dedicate all of my time to building out that piece. I say it's unique because we were a team of five plus two operations running you know, a multi-billion dollar portfolio. And there are a lot of them around town and in North Texas. It is hard. You know, everyone is short staffed as it is. It is hard to dedicate an entire person to just what's going to be one small sliver of the portfolio. But we did it. And if you fast forward from 2012 to 2018, we deployed about 250 million into venture, into this strategy, identifying that next generation. So that meant, you know, a dozen or so fund managers uh, that had access to entrepreneurs building the next Ubers, the next Facebooks. Um, and then in 2018, you know, leading up to 2018, we decided we had had the entrepreneurial bug for a very long time. Being in venture, it, it sort of is, is always itching at you. We had a number of investors around town, peers in town that said, we still don't know how to do it and identify the funds that you have access to. So if you were to ever do something outside of what you do, we'd be interested in, in, in backing you with capital. And so 2018 was that catalyst um, to start Summit Peak and focus specifically on venture. And so Summit Peak, so I understand this is venture capital that invests in managers that are then the folks that are going out and putting money in the company. So you're not interested in putting money in a one-off company. You're interested in finding the managers. So 70% of our capital is invested in fund managers. They have now proven themselves out as the top 5% in venture, in all of venture, in early stage. If you were to ask then, it, it, was, it was a lot of reference checking. And even today, people ask us, We've been on the road a lot recently, seeing investors, talking about the current environment. People ask us how we get comfortable with the key man risk involved in a solo capitalist. And, you know, we push it back and say, how do you get comfortable when two GPs come together from different organizations? And what does decision making look like? And where is deal flow coming from? And how do you underwrite two track records from two different places? Whereas one person, your legal documents protect you from key man risk. Right. If they get hit by a bus, that's the end of the investment period. Um, but we can reference one person. We know what decision making will be like. We can reference track records and founders. So we, you know, we were we took a calculated bet and calculated risk in terms of spending time on that space. So seventy percent of our capital is going into those funds. As I've said, you know, they've now proven themselves out to be that next. They are the next generation. And they are feeders into the brand name firms, meaning the Sequoias of the world are following on into these companies at the Series A, B, C, you know, and beyond. And then 30% of our capital are co-investments. So the fund managers that we back, they ultimately run out of capital in their portfolios, call it by the Series A. By the time the Series B hits, and this has changed over the last decade, by the time the Series B hits, company has found product market fit, there's significant market traction. 
today there's an eye towards profitability and not just growth. And at that point, a fund that we would back has pro rata allocation or they've earned pro rata allocation into that series B. And, you know, they offer it to their they offer it to their LPs broadly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all about relationships in venture as opposed to agreed upon rights. And so in the case of us co-investing, it's because of the relationships we've built. So when we were at the endowment, we invested in the same 70% in funds, 30% in co-investment strategy. And then when we started Summit Peak, it's the same, you know, it, it mimics how we invested at the endowment. If we had done this a year ago, it seemed like maybe at the peak of hysteria, maybe even over the last decade, it's like everybody was becoming a VC. It's basically like if you had a friend that's starting a tech company and you had some cash, you were putting on your Twitter profile, I'm an angel investor. I think it got really crowded and diluted. One of the things I've admired about what y'all have done is you've said, okay, there might be like a thousand angel investors out in the world, but there's really like 50 that matter. To you, what is what do you look for to say for a pre-seed, uh, seed, Series A investor? Like they have to have these qualities to really count as an early stage investor, in your view? Yeah, I mean, so in in 2018 when we launched the firm and the first fund, you know, everyone's memory is very short term. I'm sure ours are as well. SoftBank was deploying capital at untenable pace, you know, at an untenable pace then, and. They put money in Uber and a number of companies, and people were wondering, we've gotten ahead of our skis in terms of valuations. And so it was not easy raising capital at a time where everyone thought we were at peak valuations. And we talked a lot about tourist capital back then with our investors, which was this flood of new people. I mean, it, it's tenfold <laughs> since 2018, but this flood of new people that consider themselves venture capitalists, you know. Having started this in 2012, we got to see who was coming into the market. So for perspective's sake, you know, in 2012, the amount of micro VCs was less than 200, you know, somewhere between 150 to 200. And we met with a large majority of them. So, you know, in the institutional investing world, one of our investors uses this term frequently. It's all about pattern recognition. And we built our pattern recognition in venture, which was not easy relative to other asset classes. When you're talking about real estate, when you're talking about credit or hedge funds, there's a lot of quantitative metrics that you can look at and you can slice and dice portfolios in, in any which way. In venture, when it's a fund one, you know, you have an angel track record of somebody, you know, starting or, you know, the deals that they did at Sequoia, but they can't, they can't exactly give you the track record they can just show all the deals and the valuation that they entered and the valuation that it is today. And you're supposed to ex extrapolate a track record. And so venture relative to other asset classes is way more qualitative in terms of what you're trying to assess. But we had the benefit of starting at a time when it was less crowded. Over the years, it has become more and more crowded. I mean, every segment, every stage of venture has be, you know, been flooded with capital. And so back to that perspective, there's now over 2,500 funds in that segment of the market that we started back in 2012. And so in that segment now, you have people that, as you say, you know, they did a, a few deals and, you know, I have a track record as an angel. I'm going to go raise an, an angel list has been great for the market for, you know, to allow people to create funds seamlessly. The hurdle to start a company is way lower than it was 20 years ago. That's a great thing for innovation and entrepreneurship. The hurdle to start a fund is way lower than it was 10 years ago. And that's a great thing for people that want to start funds. But it meant that, you know, AngelList was crowded with anybody that thought that they were a VC. What that results in is this bifurcation, and we will see it play out now. We thought we would see it in 2018, and we said, Tourist capital will leave the market, but we didn't. You know, the pandemic happened, Fed <laughs> printed free money, and, um, you know, and it didn't happen. But we believe we're now in the environment where we'll see tourist capital leave and that you have this bifurcation between institutional and non institutional. And the institutional funds, you know, there's no precise portfolio construction. I mean, you can, you know, read on Twitter, people have 
this is exactly how you should construct a $40 million VC fund, and here's your number of hits, and here's your number of losses. There's nothing precise about it. It ultimately is a gut feeling that a fund manager has about a founder, especially at the earliest stages. They're backing people first, then ideas, but they do have a sense, the institutional VCs, of backing those people and being able to support them in times of stress. Whereas that tourist capital, they don't have fund construction models that are going to be able to help companies when they need it, which means they might have gotten a fund off the ground. It could have been a $10 million fund. It, you know, it could have been whatever, even a $20 million fund. But when that founder comes back to market for his next best idea, or you know, they had to shut down XYZ, and now he's starting something else, they're going to know exactly where to go. So going back to your question of like, what do we look for? It's not about whether they're institutional or non-institutional. We back two different types and we can size them appropriately to manage risk. But it is understanding what their backgrounds are. How do they think about the founders that they back? It's cliche, but we look for like the, the grit and the hustle. I mean, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of the fund managers that we backed, I mean, some of them are billionaires, but they still wouldn't do anything different than they do today. They don't act like billionaires. They run funds. They are the largest LP in their fund. We want to see that. So we, you know, we like seeing skin in the game. And then it's assessing, and this is qualitative, venture is all about finding the right deals, winning those deals, and then rinse and repeat. And on the finding, when we think about how we put a portfolio together, it's really, for us, it's about ecosystems and networks. So we get the question a lot, what do you think about Texas venture capital? You know, sitting in Fort Worth, what do you think about Austin? And, you know, we're geographically agnostic. We think about in the U.S., we're geographically agnostic. As far as venture as a whole, we think about, you know, U.S. as the predominant place in terms of where deal flow and funding is happening. But within the U.S., the pandemic has certainly lit a fire under this. Geography really doesn't matter. Yeah. So it is the fund managers that we're backing. First and foremost, we think about what networks and ecosystems, you know, do they play a role in? And that goes back to the 90s and the 2000s. If you look at the 2000s, there was the PayPal mafia. PayPal mafia is still alive and well, and that is a, you know, central node from a deal flow perspective. And it might be, Founders fund within that, Peter Thiel, he sees a lot of deals, but their funds are too big, but they pass it within their ecosystem and network of other people intertwined in that PayPal mafia that are going to be able to capitalize and, and have access to that. So, you know, that's just one ecosystem that we think is relevant. And then as you have these billion, multi-billion, decabillion dollar outcomes, they create new ecosystems. So we spend a lot of time first and foremost thinking about that in terms of how we, the people we back. Beyond that, it's, you know, their skin in the game. And it's tough, but it's really this gut instinct. I mean, understanding yeah. their portfolio construction is important, but it's our gut instinct now over 10 years of looking at funds in this space of, you know, is this person going to earn us five to 10 X our money. And, you know, do they have it in them to do that? Yeah. You know, deal flow is important everywhere, but especially in my small view of, of what I've seen in venture capital, the lower you get, and when you're only raising a million or 2 million bucks to start a company, that's only maybe 10 investors on the cap table, maybe, maybe a little more. Part of the whole magic is being one of the 10 that got to see it. It's not, did you have the capital? Would you have done it? It's, was it there or was it not? And those are going quick. All right. We said this was kind of a great time to, to do this. We almost did it a couple months ago. You and I had lunch in March. The, the world in general has shifted quite a bit. I think venture and, and tech, we've seen public company multiples go down quite a bit. Let's just kind of start talking about like what's going on in the market. I mean, nobody likes to see a downturn, but that creates a lot of opportunity. You've already mentioned like tourist capital getting out of the market. The last two venture deals I saw, the headline in the email was profit-focused startup, which for every other industry in the world is like the only focus. So let's kind of move to 
what's going on in VC, and we can talk about your world, or we can talk about where it started in the public markets and work back. Yeah, I think that that's relevant. I mean, so we saw this, you know, let's just say nine months ago, starting in Q4, October of last year, you know, we had had a couple of exits out of our first fund. We sold the companies as, as we got them. And, you know, the market started shifting towards okay, I think, you know, these companies aren't worth 30, 40, 50 times. And you started seeing public companies starting getting crushed in November, December, and then the subsequent fall this year on the tech side. Everybody said, well, that has a trickle-down effect. It takes a quarter or two lag. It's happened faster than most people have thought. I mean, probably because of the sort of precipitous drop in the public market, that's probably why. In the pandemic, people froze, but they froze for like two weeks. People froze here starting in February from a overall venture perspective. Deals weren't, you know, just stopped getting done because no one, you know, since 2008, we haven't really seen this happen. And so that trickle down effect took place first in the private market. I mean, in the late stage private market, and then it was meant to trickle down everywhere else. Overall, we view it as healthy. I mean, the the deals that were being done late stage at you know twenty times multiples or thirty times multiples for an enterprise software business, of course, you have to overpay in venture. That is the nature of tech. That is the nature of venture. Whether it's public or private, you're categorically overpaying for growth. But there is a sort of a, a realm of reasonableness, yeah. um, and then there's then and there's not and you know, we were in that it wasn't reasonable what people were paying. I think it's partially because of the abundance of capital that had been out there. In 2018, you had SoftBank. I mean, everybody was looking for their slice of this arbitrage pie, which was you no longer had the multiples in the public market. Once the company went public, the company, as companies stayed private longer, their valuation grew on the private side to these massive 10, 15, $100 billion outcomes. And then if you're a hedge fund, you have to fight for your allocation in the IPO, and you no longer have the ability to make massive multiples the same way you did 20 years ago in things like Facebook and Google and Amazon. And so the value creation was happening on the private side, which meant everybody needed to creep earlier and earlier before a company went public. And really quick, why did the privates continue to grow? Why did companies stop going public earlier? What was the the rationale at the time? I mean, there's there's a number of reasons. I mean, it's good to be private and not public. Yeah, Let's I, get that. Yeah, so I think it's because of the amount of capital in the market. Okay. And people are willing to fund you. You can grow with less scrutiny than being a public company. I mean, ultimately, every founder's dream is to be a public company, but it comes at a very big cost. And so if we can continue to grow with free capital, I mean, as valuations increase, you're taking so much, so much less dilution at these later rounds, it gives you the ability to, you know, growth at any cost. And so it was really a function of capital in the market as opposed to anything else. Because if you look, and we alluded to this earlier, the old path for venture was four or five rounds. Seed, Series A, Series B, Series C, Series D, and then it was pre-IPO. And now you've got FGH, you know, <laughs> and it was just because people were willing to fund it and say, okay, why don't you grow some more? Why don't you use this to spend and, and add another vertical to your business? And that makes your total addressable market or the magical TAM word even bigger. And, and so it was a function of capital in the market and people trying to arb the sort of private public pop that they were going to get. And so that ultimately flooded. Tiger has been investing in privates for 20 years, so it's no surprise that they were going to do this to some extent. I mean, both myself and Patrick, we had been investing in hedge funds in 08. I mean, Tiger is what was around then. But they just started deploying more and more capital. And then you had other people saying, okay, well, you know, look at the returns they're putting up. And so Co2, same, same example. They have been investing in privates for a very long time. Maverick, same thing, but it was always only 10% of their portfolio. And it, so it grew bigger and bigger for all of these 
you know, whether it was Tiger, KOTU, D1, it was all a way to arb the returns. If you're not making it on the public side, you have to justify the two and 20 somewhere. And so, yeah. and so with all that capital coming into, you know, late stage and the velocity at which deals were getting done, it had this trickle down effect across every stage in venture. And then accordingly, when the market started correcting, it's now had that same trickle down effect. So if you take late stage, the amount of deals getting done at the late stage has come to a screeching halt. I mean, you know, no one is, not no one, but very few deals are getting done at the late stage. They are the very best companies with an eye towards profitability or already profitable. It is now only a modest, modest step up in valuation to the last round because the people that are writing that last check know if this company goes public in two to three years, we have to think that on a 10 times multiple basis, are we going to make an attractive outcome? Yeah. And we can no longer assume that, we'll see how short everyone's memories are, but we can no longer assume that, you know, we're going to go back to paying 50 times. Yeah. And then that trickled down and has trickled down and it's sort of in lockstep. So public markets started falling in October, November, late stage pre-IPO kind of emanate. I mean, IPOs and SPACs, it's a whole different you yeah. know, a whole different conversation, but IPOs and SPACs are down through Q1, 60%. And so that stopped the late stage deal flow in Q1. And then in Q2, we've seen it aggressively impact the rest of the market. Yeah. So the series Bs and Cs, I mean, they're happening for the very best companies. For the ones that don't need to raise, they're just going to wait because they, you know, either A, don't want to raise at a valuation, founders don't want to raise at a valuation that they don't think is appropriate, or, you know, they'd just rather wait to grow into the last round that they, you know, that they just raised at. And then in the last four weeks, and we spend a lot of time on the West Coast, that's where a lot of our companies are, sort of is irrelevant now where fund managers live, but a lot of the companies are still on the West Coast. In the last four to six weeks, we've seen it trickle down into the, you know, series A, seed and pre-seed stages. Okay. It's easy to kind of wrap my mind around the, the later stage companies. Like you said, they're, they're the best. They're, they're later around for a reason. Maybe they're profitable. But then you get to like B and C, which is kind of like, all right, we got product market fit. We're kind of headed on our way to something good. And then we'll move down to, to um, where you focus. But, but what is what are people thinking about in B and C? Like you said, if you don't need to raise, maybe you're lucky right now. You're just going to kind of wait it out. We've seen a lot of layoffs starting to happen, but is there anything in the market where people are like, yeah, these people are full of cash, but this probably isn't a good idea anymore. Like the, the euphoria is wearing down. Like, are these companies just going to go until hopefully they can raise another round? I think that still is an open question mark. If, if they're full of cash, they're going to keep going. Yeah. And investors, I guess my question is investors aren't calling them going conserve as much cash as you can, change course. Investors are absolutely doing that. Okay. So the overarching theme in Silicon Valley, and there have been a lot of, in the last three months, from Sequoia Capital to Andreessen Horowitz to Y Combinator, who is the largest incubator globally, they have all wrote their pieces to founders. And you know the common theme amongst that is conserve cash figure out a way to have at a minimum two years of burn, burn being so you can fund operations. You know, if you can have three to four, great, because raising right now is either A, going to be detrimental from a valuation perspective, or B, no one's going to do it. And so if you conserve cash, you focus, you change your focus to profitability versus growth, then you have a better shot at raising. So if you were a Series A, then two years from now, you have a better shot of raising that Series B because you will have grown into you know, your A valuation or somewhat grown into it. Same for B to C. So every investor is talking to their company, every fund manager, whether you're a platform fund, you know, like a Sequoia brand name, whether you're a seed fund, everybody is talking. Some people are being caught flat-footed um, you know, they are not necessarily on top of it, which means that uh, you're going to see companies go out of business. Yeah. And so that, to your point about layoffs, 
Yes, every day there is some company that is announcing 10% of the workforce, and that's after another 10% that happened in Q1. It's awful that it is happening. Um, it's, you know, it's impacting tech first. When it's shown that we are in a recession, it'll then, let's just say, trickle to every other segment, you know, every other industry. Um, but as we see it, you know, from an opportunity set perspective, we have been in this environment in venture capital where there hasn't been any sort of turnover of, of people. And so, you know, what that means, you know, you were, you were there last fall. Um, I don't know if you heard it or not, but you were there last fall when we did the fireside chat. Yeah. And, and I think I asked the question to our VCs of some of the biggest challenges they're seeing. Um, this was last November. Yeah. And one of those challenges was companies are having a hard time hiring. And that's for a couple of reasons. You have big conglomerate techs that incentivize people with options and they pay millions of dollars in salary to like the highest paid engineers. And then you have options and it's almost golden handcuffs to stay at a Facebook or Amazon, et cetera. Then you have private tech that is trying to keep up with that or trying to recruit that away. And when companies are well-funded, you can continually do that. And even if that company in a normal venture cycle wouldn't have survived, they can now survive because people are throwing money at deals. Yeah. You know, what could be a mediocre deal at the Series C, people are throwing money because there's so much capital available. What, what that in turn meant was there was no recycling of talent in venture over the last decade. So people would just, the company might have lost its growth trajectory, but they've got funding for years. So they just stay and the employees stay and, and it meant that while we have seen massive innovation over the last decade, it meant that it was just becoming more and more challenging from a recruiting perspective. And so as awful as all these layoffs are, we look at the silver lining of there's a recycling of talent that's occurring today that's making it the best time to start a company because people are saying, well, I lost my job. Might as well go build something. Yeah. Or you have companies that now can really go higher and they don't have to compete against a Facebook on that $5 million level eight engineer yeah. salary. And so because there's talent, you know, sort of flushing through the system. So overall, we view what's been happening as a healthy reboot to the system, if you will. But it's certainly every company at every stage has been sort of advised to conserve cash, you know, have two to three years of burn, and then layoffs, you know, the benefit of venture, as awful as this sounds, is there's no leverage. I mean, 99% of venture companies don't have any leverage, which means that you have levers to pull to be able to control, you know, keep burn in control. Layoffs is one easy one, but you cut marketing spend. And so you can extend what might be a six-month runway to an 18-month runway really quickly. Yeah. And you, because you don't have banks screaming down your back about, covenants on your debt and things like that. And yeah. so it, it gives venture companies a little bit of flexibility to, you know, kind of see the storm that we're going through. And then the last piece of that, the very best companies within, and this goes back to this bifurcation of institutional versus non-institutional, the very best companies funded by VCs that have been through various environments, they're going to open up the last round and do it at a flat valuation. And, and by that, the round a year ago, the Series B might have been overpriced. It might have been done at 20 times revenue. And that was valid for last year's market, but overpriced in today's market. And the company wasn't focused on burn. They were focused on grow, 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 and grow till we get to the next round. But they can't raise that capital now. And so if you have the right financial partners around the table, they'll say, well, you are growing, you know, revenue has doubled or tripled since we did that last round. Let's open up the last round and we'll do it at the same valuation. And it's, that's theoretically a deal now, right? Yeah. Now you're, you're resetting where you're paying for that business. And, and in every deal where everything was so sought after, founders were laser focused on ownership and conserving as much of their own ownership, which meant VCs would get squeezed out of deals. So if you own 10%, you know, your pro rata wouldn't necessarily be, there is, unless you led the last round, there's no such thing as pro rata. So you're just given an allocation into that next round. So the opportunity that mid-stage VCs are seeing right now 
being able to open up that last round and support good companies means that they can get ownership today at a better price. How many times does a great company have a bad outcome because the capital stack just gets all messed up? And when I think about like opening up around, the founders got to stay incentivized. They can't keep getting diluted down. Do a lot of these come with renegotiations of like when I'm thinking, okay, you raise these huge rounds, you have all these employees with options. The company actually is kicking ass, but you're just in a terrible capital market right now. How, and I know it probably happens lots of different ways, but I guess the question is, is this where you see people come to the table and say, you know, the past is the past. We need to figure out how to get here or so how to move forward. For the, for the difficult conversations, I think the answer is yes. I yeah. mean, we were an early investor in Uber, but when, and that's, that's the nature of our strategy, you know, when Uber went through its own rough patch, which was growth at any cost, this, this concept of, yes, your gross revenue looks great, but your net revenue is awful because you're subsidizing the cost of every single ride by a certain amount. You know, in 2018, they had to reset valuations. It, it still is a great business and it's still valued today at 35 billion or 40 billion and something. Every, you can go anywhere in the world and you can pull up your app and, and you know, use yeah. it. But in those cases where there has been so much money funded, people see the value of what the business can do, there's going to be a reset. Yeah. And the founders and the employees, and you can look at it in two ways. The people that are there, you are going to restrike 409As, which is you know the, the, the price at which your options convert. That's also a good thing in terms of you know, you might have come into the company in year six and you have this option pricing and now you're going to come in and, and everything gets reset in a way that is beneficial to incentivize yeah. all the employees. That's another sort of silver lining of what's happening. So, you know, for, for some of those companies, I think, you know, you're going to see that. You mentioned something earlier and I forgot to touch on it, but we, over the last 10 years, we just haven't seen company mortality. Yeah. The the venture model was always meant to be, it's predicated on the power law, which is 20%, 80% of your returns is going to be driven by 20% of your portfolio, which is to say in a $50 million fund with 25 companies, you're going to have two or three home runs. And those home runs could be 5x outcomes, 10x outcomes, 100x outcomes. And you're going to have singles and doubles. You know, you get your money back, it gets acquired for the talent or the product or something and you get your money back or you make a 2x on it. And then you're supposed to have a lot of zeros. That is the nature of taking yeah. risk in venture. In the last 10 years, we haven't seen any zeros. I mean, are we look at our portfolio as a proxy. In 2018, the fund that we deployed, it has 580 companies in it and we've had a mortality of six. Oh my um, gosh. And only 0.34% <laughs> on a cost basis have died. That's not venture math. Yeah. And so everything that's occurring, you know, our thesis 10 years ago when starting this endeavor in venture was we believe that there was going to be company mortality. Sure, if you back the right people, maybe their mortality is artificially better, like lower than the industry average. Yeah. And their picking ability, their home run ability is higher than the industry average, but you still need mortality for right. that recycling, all of that. And so, but our thesis in 2012 was, you know, diversification is going to, will aid you in this. You don't just back one fund because that's just one network. You know, right. there's no one single fund that I would put all of our capital with. And so that mortality then comes back into play of like the recycling of talent. But just this, to your question about our terms being reset. Three months ago, no, founders were still sort of sitting in a place where they felt they were in the position of power. And and you should never, you know, I hate speaking like that, but whether it's a GPLP, there's this pendulum, whether it's a founder and a fund, there's this pendulum of where the power lies. You know, we like to say with our investors, we try to be as close to middle as possible, that, you know, we're as aligned with our investors as possible. When it comes to venture, over the last decade, it has swung completely in favor of the founder. 
And what's going on now moves that pendulum back, you know, hopefully closer to middle so that it's more aligned between founder and, you know, an investor. Got it. All right, let's move down. You know, we said that seed, pre-seed, series A, they're starting to become some reset. Before we talk about some of that, do you think that obviously there's less capital available right now? We're, we're working on uh, profitability, but do you also see, I mean, maybe this is a prediction or what you're already seeing. I know this is all pretty recent, but like the same ideas that people would leave to go start a company. Like, I, I guess maybe I'll start with, I'm coming from a world as I look at the next 10 years, this is my kind of, it's, it's what's been in my head a lot lately is like, 2010 to 2022, a lot of fun. A lot of good stuff got done. A lot of stuff, just total garbage. Not just because the VC markets now. You can just look at some of the stuff that people were building. Now we're living in a world where housing is really expensive. Energy costs is going through the roof. You know, there's a lot of social issues that uh, people think that maybe tech is putting, uh, making it easy for people to be socially disrupted. And my view over the next 10 years is like, okay, we're getting back to blocking and tackling. A lot of fundamental things that like, you, you, we don't need the next Snapchat to move the world forward, but we might need gasoline back at $2 yeah. to move the world forward. So as you think about the ideas that are going to get funded, and, and I think you just kind of announced like a great way is like, nothing's really died. Everything's gotten funded. Is this a combination of more capital going into the right ideas and lots of ideas just never getting off the ground? I think so. I mean, you know, it, we're in July. So the yeah. next Y Combinator demo day will happen at the end of August. There's two demo days. You know, Y Combinator for perspective, since the late 2000s have has produced, you know, 150 billion of value. Uber came out of Y Combinator. Stripe came out of Y Combinator. Instacart. I mean, Great company, Airbnb, great companies that we all know today and, and rely on have come out of there. And there was this wave of innovation, which, you know, now we could probably say we couldn't live without some of these things. And then over the subsequent years, there were lots of things that were funded where, which, you know, Patrick yeah. and I, as not coming from venture, we came from, came to venture from a very different perspective we'd look at some of these ideas and just shake our head and be like, what is this, yeah. <laughs> you know? And how could anyone have given this this founder or this idea money, but it was just, you know, a sign of the time. So I do think we come back to planet Earth on like funding really the best ideas. I, our view is, and will continue to be so for a long time, is that innovation isn't going to slow down. Yeah. And there is, the pandemic certainly exacerbated this in a good way or lit a fire under it and, you know, the environment we're in as well, we have just started. I mean, so enterprise software, sure. Maybe, you know, maybe we don't, or buy now, pay later. Maybe we don't need another five buy now, pay later businesses. I think we're good with like the three or four that are out there <laughs> and they still have to figure out and find their way. But as it relates to other areas, FinTech is a $7 trillion industry. And when you look at the exits that have occurred and the innovation that's occurred in fintech, we've like scratched like one percent of that. Yeah. And I'm fortunate, my you know my wife works at a bank at J.P. Morgan. I kind of see it every day, sort of the archaicness of how banks operate. And so, I think we're going to still see massive innovation. But and to, you know to your point, I mean, there still is a ton of capital, so it's going to be the very best VCs are going to shine now, whereas yeah. before anybody could do a deal. And with momentum and hype, those deals looked great. Those things will come down and the very best B VCs will go back to truly having access. Is maybe the best hype story of all time Clubhouse? Uh, yeah, you, you might be right. I, 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 I don't know if there's a better one. That was a fun thing to watch. And I, I believed it for like a week. <laughs> I, I joined or got invited and then got on one thing and I said... I think that was the most exciting part about Clubhouse was waiting to get your invite to get on to Clubhouse. Yeah, yeah. Um, they should have taken the deal to be acquired by Twitter. Let's just put it that yeah. way. <laughs> All right. So Series A, uh, Series Pre-Seed, Seed, 
kind of what's going on in that realm right now? Yeah, I mean, so the nomenclature is interesting. If you rewind back a decade ago, Pre-Seed really didn't exist. It was Angel. Or companies have always, venture has always existed. Um, mm-hmm. And it was friends and family and you bootstrap it. Then there's an Angel round. And an Angel round, really all that it meant was there was no terms associated. There was a valuation cap and it was a certain amount of money that you wanted to raise at that valuation cap. In a not in a bad way, but Y Combinator democratized that angel round into what is a pre-seed. And they democratized it using a safe, which is you know simple agreement for future equity. And so that's what angel rounds now have become pre-seed, which is a VC that's backing a founder. They're backing somebody from their network, whether it's Stanford, whether it's the PayPal mafia, whether they're leaving Stripe to go build something. And an example of you know one of our companies, you know the data science team that was at a firm and you know focused around synthetic identity fraud, left a firm to go build something because they felt like they could scale this into a business that sells to other business instead of just doing it within a firm. And so pre-seed was pre-product, pre-revenue. In the case of this company, Centrelink, that there was a product because they were using it um, within what they built at a firm. Pre-seed was pre-product, pre-revenue. 10 years ago, what that meant was valuations of four to six million pre-money over the last, or even two to four million, two to five million over the last decade, you know, that has turned into a pre-seed round happening at 10, 12, even 15 million. So you're backing a founder and it's pre-product, pre-revenue, and you take that capital to build your product and get it to the seed round. Seed round accordingly was then, you know, you have product, you probably have customers, users, you know, user growth that you can show. You might even have some revenue, but maybe not. And seed rounds were, again, 10 years ago being done at 10 million, anywhere from six to 10 million pre-money, which meant that a VC, the kinds of VCs that we backed, they could write a $600,000 check at a $6 million pre-money and own 10% of the business. And and so everybody's models have had to adjust over the last decade and fund sizes have had to grow accordingly because as the valuations moved up, if you wanted to own 10% of a business, you needed to write a million dollar check when it's a 10 million or a $2 million check when that valuation moved and it did all the way to 20 million. And so we were seeing and have seen over the last two years deals being done you know, at 20 million pre-money or 30 million pre-money for the right founder or founding team, et cetera. And then the Series A accordingly over the the shift, and we'll move back, but the shift was Series A would be after that seed round, the time from seed to Series A, historically, it could be anywhere from six months to 24 months. Over the last four years, it went from the average time, if you look on a decade, was 18 months. And that's showing product, you show product market fit at that Series A, you have revenue, you have anywhere from half a million all the way up to 2 million of revenue at that Series A. And what's changed now or what will change is, or over the last four years, that seed to Series A had gone down to less than a year. Everybody wanted their slide, like, I need to get in before the A is done. So let's slap a convertible note so we can get in before the A. And then the A is going to be priced, you know, very high. And so the A rounds moved to, you know, 50 million or 60 million pre-money all the way up to 100 million pre. So if you think about it on a multiple basis, people were paying 100x revenue on that 1 million, you know, $1 million of annual recurring revenue, uh, you know, for a $100 million uh, valuation. So what's changed now, and we've seen this dramatic shift already over the last six weeks, all those round at least at the pre-seed and seed have come down 25 to 40%. And so, you know, now you can be doing pre-seed deals again, instead of at a 10 million pre-seed, it's down to six. And same for pre uh, for seed, instead of 20 to $30 million seeds, you can get them, you know, down to 15. For the very best companies, there's still going to be a premium and the top end is still going to look like 20 million, you know, but the bottom end could be, you know, 10. And then, that 
follow-on effect, companies are really going to have to show material progress to the Series A. And you're going to see less of these, we think, these little baby rounds in between and safes or convertible notes done between the seed and the Series A. And it's really just going to be an institutional VC that says, I want to see $2 million of revenue, not a million. And it's not a $100 million valuation, it's 40. Oh. So going back to my first comment, you know, you categorically are overpaying in venture. We prefer to overpay early, but, you know, it is now back to, you know, you're overpaying at a 20x multiple at the Series A yep. as opposed to a 50 to 100x. Yep. And when, and when you describe the best seed company, it's really like, who are the founders? Are they, uh, is this their second go round? Like, what is their track record? And then some fundamentals of the business. But when we're describing something that early, it's because the best thing about like early uh, stage is they'll go from like zero to five customers and they'll be like, we grew 500%. It's like, <laughs> okay, fair enough. You did. So when if we're describing a great seed company that in today's market could command a $30 million valuation, is it more on business growth or more on founder uh, track it's, record? It's really founder track yeah. record. I mean, you know, one of our VCs describes it well when he backs people. So this VC, he's the founder of a company. So he was an angel investor. Then he worked at a company which in 14 sort of a storied example of a company going out of business because of just aggressive spend. It was a consumer marketplace. It's not a consumer marketplace, yeah. <laughs> but it was called a consumer marketplace, raised money from well-known investors, Andreessen Horowitz and Kosla, spent a ton of money. And he was, you know, he was there as, you know, chief of staff or head of product. And so sort of saw the rise and fall of this business. While there, he kind of realized the mistakes that the company made, and it was a lot of management mistakes. So he started a business called Lattice. Lattice is an HR management mm -hmm. enterprise software platform. And so since 2015, he's been running Lattice. And then a couple of years ago, decided to raise his own venture fund alongside being CEO of Lattice. So, you know, what we like about this is, you know, went from angel investing and having an investing track record to being at a company, seeing kind of the mistakes being made at a company firsthand, then being in the seat today and growing a company from nothing in 2015 to, you know, over a hundred million of revenue and a $3 billion valuation today. So when he is backing founders, you know, he describes it so well of like, he's, it's all about the people. Um, and it is not just about the people being the CEO today. His role is attracting talent. You know, he is trying to figure out when he backs a company, he's trying to say, you know, is this going to be a founder that people will leave XYZ big tech to go work for? And can they sell? And it's not only selling your product, but it's selling people to come join you in yep. this endeavor. And so it really is at the seed stage, it's about the people. There are some sort of magical occurrences where you have two founders and one's very engineering focus and one's sales focus. And when you have that marriage, you know, it, it, it works really well. There's some where their founder can do both, right? He's in the weeds from an engineering perspective, but also a phenomenal salesperson. Yeah. And so at the seed stage, that's what matters most. Yep. One thing you've brought up, I've written, I've written it down twice, so I've got to talk about it. And I think it's it, it's super interesting to see, hear how you think about it. You've brought up the PayPal mafia, and I think even earlier you called it like the PayPal mafia node. Yeah, I, yeah, we call it like a super node too. Okay, <laughs> but I think that's a really interesting thing. Like if you were in venture 20, 30 years ago, that maybe there weren't these. What I'm envisioning is kind of these mafias. Yeah. Can you describe to me from your perspective what the PayPal mafia means to you and the true value that they harness in the venture capital ecosystem? Sure. Yeah. And so there's 14 people that, you know, co-founded or were the, you know, senior management team at PayPal. I'm not gonna be able to rattle yeah. off all of them, but Elon Musk. Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, uh, Joe Lonsdale. Elon Musk and Peter Thiel are obvious in terms of who they are. Joe Lonsdale started a company called Palantir, has his own venture fund called 8VC, started another company called Adapar, David Sachs. David Sachs runs his own venture fund called Craft Ventures. Great podcaster. Yes. 
And in addition to that, he started a company called Yammer, which he sold to Microsoft, was the CEO of a company called Zenefit. Max Levchin, he started a, a firm, has his own family office. So all of these people, you know, were the founding team of PayPal. And there, there's a number of more, obviously, that I'm, I'm leaving out. When we talk about the PayPal mafia and sort of being interconnected into it, one of our funds specifically was an editor of the Stanford Review, the third editor of the Stanford Review. So there's one thing to have access to Stanford entrepreneurs or Harvard entrepreneurs. Again, we, we think about where deal flow is occurring in the U.S. We focus on U.S. because it, it is a large majority of global deal flow. But then within the U.S., think about sort of where that deal flow occurs. And they occur out of incubators. They occur out of you know, four major universities, Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Berkeley. And so we then look at the funds that we invest with and, and think about how we have access to those networks. So it's one thing to just have access to Stanford entrepreneurs because you went there. It's another to have this PayPal mafia. So one of our funds, the founding GP, was the third editor of the Stanford Review. Prior to him, it was David Sachs, and prior to him, it was Peter Thiel. And so that is being connected into, mm. you know, the PayPal mafia, which means that you know, we, he lives here actually in Dallas. And so, you know, we will find ourselves on a flight together to San Francisco um, from time to time. And, you know, we're sitting on the tarmac and he just calls David Sachs up and David's, you know, it is that close of a relationship that not only are you seeing deal flow that is for those funds it is too early and too small for them to do. So they're sort of giving it to their own network of people. And then it opens up what looks like follow-on capital if those companies succeed. So, you know, the PayPal mafia, it, it is now, I mean, it's, um, it's proven out. I mean, the companies that have come from people that were part of the original PayPal team or the funds that have been created and then the value creation from there. So it's just, you know, we use it as a great example. I mean, there are others in terms of other companies that we've seen. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm not sure if you've seen it or not, but you know, there's a fund called Air Angels, which is a whole group of people that left Airbnb and you know, started, I heard about it. Started their own venture fund, and and so there are there are things that are you know trying to be like the PayPal mafia. Still remains to be seen. Most of them were created over the last. Yeah. three to four years. So it remains to be seen kind of what sticks. And to be fair, the PayPal mafia is kind of this like understood thing. It's not like they have email addresses that say like, it's like this <laughs> company within a company. It's just kind of like, we all know each other. We're best friends. We've been at each other's weddings. Yeah. We all want each other to succeed. And it's just created this kind of vortex funnel of just good yeah, opportunities. Absolutely. That, yeah. I don't know if there's an email address or not. There could, there, there very well could be. There could be. If anybody's listening to this and you know of that email address, holler. <laughs> All right. This has been awesome. If you are in the PayPal mafia and you're listening to this, I know I didn't work with you all, but I'm happy to, to join, join the fight. All right. This has been awesome. We've kind of talked about where uh, VC's been, kind of where we are in the midst of this uh, economic storm, but we haven't really touched on like, where do you think we're headed? So if I were to say, yeah, we'll be doing this five years from now, what are just some key pillars of VC that you see playing out as, as we move forward or things that you're thinking about as you're making these long-term bets? So, yeah, our, our view is, is this could be one of the best vintages to be deploying capital, which means 2022, 2023 funds that are starting to write checks later this year into next year, into the year after not only from a valuation perspective, you know, we touched on valuations. We think that is important. More on that pendulum and the, you know, the founder and fund pendulum, which is, you know, the founder not necessarily having all the rights. You know, we didn't touch on it very much, but with founders having all the power, it meant that you would write that check as a seed investor and have no information rights. And, you know, you're just kind of flying blind alongside this company. So we, you know, we are starting to see it today, which is over the next, you know, three, six months, three, six, nine months, we hope it sticks that, you know, that pendulum moves more aligned where funds 
which we're deploying capital to, have a better alignment with the founders and have more information in terms of what they're doing. So valuations, you know, that talent recycling we feel is important, the alignment, and then innovation isn't slowing down. You know, we talked about fintech. I talked a little bit about the pandemic, but, you know, you have innovation in health tech that we are just scratching the surface on. And that's not med tech. That's just, you know, healthcare focused. Enterprise software is always going to be new category, you know, killing companies that are built and category leading companies. So we, I'll say it, but, you know, Web3. Crypto, crypto, There is innovation, (laughs) innovation that is occurring there. And, you know, we will continue to see the pace and the rate of innovation accelerate. The one change that we do believe will happen, you know, over the next decade or over the next five years, which makes it as exciting as when we started this endeavor a decade ago, is this resetting and mindset shift. You know, not everything needs to be a $10 billion outcome or is going to be because of aggressive valuations. And so, you know, 10 years ago, our thesis was if you invest at the early stage, you can have venture outcomes without having everything be a unicorn. I think the next three years, four years, the term unicorn will actually mean something, which it's been diluted down to mean nothing over the last five. But now when you actually hit that milestone, it's going to mean something again because people aren't going to be, you know, overpaying for for companies. And so, you know, when we look at a 2012 vintage, when we started, you know, the returns are phenomenal, not only in paper gains, but in terms of distributions that have investors have re- received. And our thesis then was not everything has to be a unicorn. M&A is very real. There are lots of companies that, you know, have tons and tons of cash, including venture-backed companies that can go acquire. We are starting to see it. In Q2 alone, we had four companies get acquired with meaningful outcomes. So it is, you know, we're going to go back to this mindset of liquidity and, you know, the IPO window is shut for the foreseeable future. But people will say, all right, well, I can just go acquire XYZ business and founders will, you know, will will take that path. It was easier to take the path when free capital was available, but founders will now take that path. So we, you know, we think that the 2022 vintage a decade later shapes up to be as attractive as a 2012 vintage in venture, but just with different market dynamics. Yeah. I would like to introduce the stallion instead of a unicorn, which a stallion would be a billion dollar company that is profitable. There you Um, go. You heard it here first. All right. This was awesome. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate the thoughtful questions. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.